Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. And this episode, we are finishing a story by John V. Marsh. This has been a pretty intense road to get here. Right. I told you off mic, Glenn, that I found this novella to be maybe more challenging in some ways than Book of the New Sun. And it's solely because of the types of language games that Wolf is playing in New Sun are comprehensible, at least in some level. This is very difficult. And I hope when we get to VRT that some light will be shown on what exactly is happening in this story. Yeah, let's not bet on that, though. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It is Wolf after all. (laughs) I do want to take a moment to wish our listeners and our supporters uh, a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Thanks for listening along with us through this story. We really hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, wherever you are, we hope you're enjoying a day off from work or, I don't know, getting ready to walk up Arthur's seat or perhaps participate in your town's weird version of a Christmas ball game of some sort. And it is kind of a shame that we're not covering Wolf's Christmas story, La Bafana, today, since it'll be seven years before we randomly release an episode on Christmas again. In fact, maybe even more than that. But I think the end of this novella is pretty exciting, as we've talked about already. So let's get into it. Brandon, what was your reaction to this final part? I absolutely loved it. As I've been saying every episode, this is really, again, one of Wolf's great works. And and I hate to say it, Glenn, but you were right about much about the nature of the Shadow Children, though I think there's still plenty of room for debate around what is going on with the Shadow Children and the Abos in terms of their nature, in terms of their speciesood. Yeah, and I think we'll be getting into that, not this episode or the discussion episode to follow, but probably in the wrap-up episode. Last time we left off with our hero, John Sandwalker, in The Other Eye, the pit where the Marshmen keep their prisoners. And we pick up here in this episode with John Sandwalker and the Shadow Children, or the Old Wise One at least, sharing stories about their past. As we open, Sandwalker is still napping with the woman Sweet Mouth, and the Marshmen throw down some plant stems for sustenance. And we get actually a pretty touching scene here when the, the Shadow Children bring some of these over to Sandwalker and Sweetmouth, who haven't woken up and scrambled for them the way that prisoners are, are supposed to do. And I guess this is what it means to be a shadow friend. The old wise one sits down next to Sandwalker to talk. And this is going to be maybe the most significant conversation of the whole story. So we'll take it in slow detail here. The old wise one starts this conversation by saying that It is always wise to talk a great deal, discussing what has been done and what may be done when nothing can be done. All the great political movements of history were born in prisons. And as has almost always been the case in these conversations with the Shadow Children, Sandwalker has no idea what the Old Wise One is talking about. What are political movements, he asks. What is history? And I'm not surprised to discover that Sandwalker doesn't know anything about John Castle and the quest for liberty and a universal basic income. But I did think it was interesting to note that even though Sandwalker has a sense of some remote time when St. Anne was different than it is now, this long dreaming when God was king, he has no concept of a record or even a memory of past events. This concept is totally alien to him. Yeah, I think this is a very important point in this story that John Sandwalker has no sense of history. And this notion of political movements, the notion of a polis is would, of course, be foreign to people like John Sandwalker. I think this idea of political movements being born in prison is also very important as we move on into the next novella, though I haven't read it. I think that this line stands out and seems so anachronistic and so foreign because it's important to the author of this text, John V. Marsh. Well, and certainly, as we saw when we were reading Operation Ares and many of Wolf's very early short stories, political movements, the political ideologies that are shaping the Cold War and the events on the news and in newspapers really matter to Wolf as well. So I think this is still something that, that's on his mind. But the old wise one almost laughs at Sandwalker's ignorance. He doesn't find it interesting. He finds it laughable. And he, he comments that although Sandwalker's forehead is high and his eyes are far apart, the brains of his species are actually located in the thorax. So head size isn't really any indication of mental capacity. 
this is a major, major reveal. <laughs> One of several we get in this section. And that's really all there is to say about that, I think. It's just now we know for certain that the Shadow Children and the Abos are two different species. And we're going to learn a lot more about why in the next few pages. I also want to point out for our listeners the way that Wolf is using the concept of brain to slip new ideas into this story. His language slips as we'll see, from brain to minds to souls. And this is, I think, a very important thing that Wolf is doing here. Yeah, Sandwalker jokes that, of course, we all have our brains in our stomachs when we're hungry, but the old wise one corrects him. He says, well, you mean minds. And this is a little more of the shadow children obsession with minds that we've seen before. He also says that it is possible for the mind to float 14,000 feet or more above the head. And here... Sandwalker takes this cue and he tells the old wise one what he has learned about the Marshmen star walkers, that they claim that their minds, and here he says that perhaps they mean their souls, right? So this is the slippage. We do go from brain to mind to soul, can travel into space and read everything there, which is not something the hill people believe is possible. There's also an odd connection here between the traveling of the insubstantial, the soul, with the invisible forces that power the universe, gravity, for instance. And what he says here is that the soul of the Marshmen leave the ground, kick off from Sister World, and are drawn by the attractive universe, whirling among the constellations until dawn. So there is also this conflation of ideas between the soul being insubstantial as a concept of not material or insubstantial in some way, the opposite of substance, and the forces that we use to describe how physics, how the physical universe operates, that material depends upon. Wolf is really doing something clever and very complex in this one-sentence paragraph. The verb kick off is loaded here, and we're immediately faced with the question of how literal that is versus being a figure of speech. But if it is literal, what does that mean about what souls actually are to a physicist, perhaps? And I'm looking forward to getting into that in our wrap-up episode. But here in this conversation is where things are going to get even more interesting than they already are. The old wise one asks Sandwalker if he knows what a star crosser is. And he goes on to explain that a star crosser is like a big hollow log that people can get inside and use to travel among the stars, the same way that a log can float down a river. And he then goes on to say, and I'm going to quote here because it's important. Now, humans, my race, actually traveled in those, cruising among the stars before the long dreaming days. We came here that way. Of course, we've inferred this already, right, from Sandwalker's very first conversation with the shadowed children, but Sandwalker himself has missed this. It's as if he hasn't been primed for this by spending a lifetime reading science fiction. So he's confused, and Sandwalker says that he thought the shadowed children were always here on St. Anne. And now, at this point, the old wise one himself gets confused. He, he shakes his head and he says, well... We either came recently, or we came a long, long time ago. I'm not sure which. Sandwalker, even though he's just admitted to not understanding what history is, asks, don't your songs tell you this? But the Shadow Children had no songs when they came to St. Anne, and indeed, that is one of the reasons that they stayed, and it's also why they lost the Starcrosser. So just to summarize it, to make it clear, what the old wise one is saying is that the shadow children came here from another planet. We've heard him say this before, but on a spaceship and they lost that spaceship somehow. It's a, as if there was a, a spaceship wreck or something like that, that they got stranded here, uh, though he does also seem to indicate that there's some agency there. And we'll get more about that later. And Sandwalker's unfazed by this loss of the Starcrosser because he thinks that the Shadow Children couldn't have gone back anyway because rivers only flow in one direction. This is the second time we have seen this metaphor of the river flowing used with an emphasis on the direction in which it is flowing. And the old wise one agrees that they couldn't have returned, but for him it's, it's because they had changed too much. 
He asks Sandwalker if he thinks that their two species resemble each other in any way, and to Sandwalker, they do not. The Shadow Children, humans perhaps, are too small and they look unhealthy, and their ears are too round and they certainly don't have enough hair. And realizing that this might actually be insulting to say to someone, Sandwalker apologizes, but the old wise one shrugs it off. He says, it is thought that makes things so. And since they don't actually think of themselves the way that Sandwalker has described them, they don't think of themselves as too short and too hairless, then it's not true. Yeah, this line immediately called to my mind the line in Hamlet from scene two, act two, where Hamlet says, there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And and I think we're going to save our discussion of how that idea fits into this story for our wrap-up episode, because there's so much to get through in this last 20 pages. But I think it's absolutely crucial to our ongoing discussion about substance and about the power of the mind and what Wolf is trying to do with that in this story. It is also a weird assertion of total subjectivity on the part of the humans. I think we can safely say they're humans, and this is what you were right about all along, of course. The tale of the fighting lizard is, of course, our sun, and the the waterfall is the Milky Way, and all of this is laid out here for us in, in really clear detail. But this sense of subjectivity on the part of the Shadow Children has done something to warp their nature, and that is something we will be discussing in our discussion episode I think you're absolutely right also to emphasize the river flowing upstream. Now, of course, there are a number of reasons why the Starcrosser could have been lost. There were no resources to get back to the planet. There was nowhere to launch. And we're going to find out how the Starcrosser lands, which also could lead to how it was lost. But Sandwalker's instinct is to think about time as a river the same way that the marshmen do. The river flows upstream, which in the symbolic logic of the story is towards the future. The marshmen, the way the river flows is towards the past into the infinite ocean. And so there's something going on here where Sandwalker is thinking about them returning to their planet is an impossible move to the future in some way. That time only flows in one direction. It's actually a very complicated line to unpack because of how we've encountered time. And perhaps we'll have a section in our wrap-up episode to talk about more deeply, as we did last episode, how time is functioning as more of it is revealed in this section. Yeah, and I'm not really sure that we know how Sandwalker thinks about the river and its relationship with time, because this is a metaphor that we see the Marshmen using, but that'll be fun to to dig into a little bit more in our wrap-up episode. Uh, For now, here we get what I think is a pretty funny aside when the old wise one explains that, well, no matter what the Shadow Children look like now, they did actually used to look the way that Sandwalker and Eastwind species does currently. And we get into Sandwalker's point of view here, and he thinks that the old wise one is about to tell him a story explaining how the Shadow Children have come to be the way that they are. And he knows a number of stories like this, and they have titles, and he gives us two of them. How the Mule Cat Got His Tail, and Why the Neagle Never Flies. And of course, these titles are parodies of Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories, which is a children's book full of animal origin stories, such as How the Leopard Got His Spots, and The Sing Song of Old Man Kangaroo. And as I say, every time Wolf fills his worlds with imaginary stories he hasn't actually written, I yearn for Gene Wolfe's sci-fi kids book full of just so stories about alien animals. Yeah, me too. It's important to note, as you said, that Sandwalker is looking for a how the shadow children got the way they are type of story, but he's going to get another story entirely from the old wise one. I do think that Wolf is intentionally playing with this reference here. It is a funny joke. I mean, I laughed aloud while reading it, but it also works with the themes of this story. Colonialism is something that is at the core of both stories that we've encountered so far in the novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And Rudyard Kipling is really the epitome of British imperialist literature, which is slightly different from colonialism, but I still think probably relevant here on that note. But The stories that Kipling tells also are funny, but they 
show the animals being agents in their own change over time, in their own evolution, which is a silly notion to make fun stories for kids that certainly conflicts with what we learned about how evolution works in high school. But this is Lamarckism, which is something Wolf believes in, at least a a little bit which is to say directed species change. And I think that's also something that is maybe happening here in this story, right? So this is an absolutely brilliant reference wrapped up in a joke. Yeah, it just reveals the contexts and texts that Wolf is so deeply engaged with that these things find a way into his stories, whether he is consciously including them or not. And so what is just a joke reveals so much about the intellectual life, the mental furniture of Wolf's reality. When I saw this reference, when we were reading for this episode, I decided to pull my copy of the Gesso stories off the shelf and flip through it. I I didn't read it all again very carefully, but in flipping through, I, I noticed something as well that I think is interesting. The kangaroo on its journey to becoming the kangaroo as we recognize it now is at some point called by another character, a cat rabbit. And this is the same types of names that Wolf has been giving animals throughout this story. Things like the Fane pheasant, the ghoul bear. Uh, so I think the Just So stories actually really are relevant for everything. I wish that we'd pick that up earlier. All right. Well, as it turns out, the old wise one is actually not going to tell a Just So story. But he is going to tell a story about how humans came to St. Anne. Or at least maybe that's what the story's about. We'll see. As he said before, they came here either recently or a long, long time ago. Whichever it is, they've forgotten the name of their home, even though they try to remember it often. And sometimes when they are doing their mind singing, they can also hear the mind singing of their brothers as they pass up and down between the stars. The shadow children bend the thinking of these travelers. They they make them go back. But in doing so... They also receive the thoughts of these space travelers, and they hear names that may be the name of their home. And we get a really interesting list of those names here. I think we're going to explicate this a little more in the discussion because there's a lot to say about them. So for now, I'll just list them, and I think the significance will be apparent even without the explication, or at least some of it will be. The list of possible places the Shadow Children have come from are Atlantis, Mu, Gondwana Land, Africa, Poitem, and the country of friends. This is exciting. This is great. This is really fun to look up and kind of figure out how all of these names fit into the story. We also need to track this, this idea of bending the thinking. This is a crucial point that is going to inform how the rest of the story plays out. Essentially, what's happening here is they are cloaking the planet somehow. They are using their minds to cloak the planet. And the question at this point still remains as to how a human being gains this power. And that will be answered as well in this story. Yeah, I don't know if they're cloaking it or if this is more of an Obi-Wan Kenobi, these are not the droids you're looking for. This is not the planet you're looking for type of moment. Yeah, or in the prequel trilogy where they find that one of the planets has just been deleted from the Jedi database and like Obi-Wan finds it because of a weird like planetary warp. I don't know. That's what I was thinking of. Also, this paragraph opens with a sentence that includes the words a long, long time ago. So George Lucas has been absolutely reading Gene Wolf. Yeah, just more proof. I hope we're compiling a, a pretty good intellectual property lawsuit here for, for Gene Wolf. <laughs> well, the old wise one is going to continue his story now. He says, When we came here, we looked as you do now. But Sandwalker interrupts him to complete the story because it turns out that his mother has told him the story of how the Shadow Children got their appearance. They actually have, the Hill People, have a just so story about the Shadow Children. And the story is this. The Shadow Children took off their appearance so that they could bathe. And when they did that, the Hill People stole it from them. And that's how they have come to resemble the Shadow Children somehow. And I really love this story, but the old wise one is not amused by it at all. That's not the type of conversation he wants to have. So all he says is that it wasn't necessary for them to lose their appearance in order for Sandwalker species to gain it. Now we get some really great stuff. I guess everything before has been great too, but we're going to get some even greater stuff. The old wise one says, You come from a race of shape changers, like those we called werewolves in our old home. 
When we came, some of you looked like every beast, and some were of fantastic forms inspired by the clouds, or by lava flows, or water. Let me see the elements here again. The old wise one continues, But we walked among you in power and majesty and might, hissing like a thousand serpents as we splashed down in your sea, stepping like conquerors when we strode ashore with burning lights in our fists and flame. Sandwalker loves this story almost as much as I do. He shouts, ah! But when the old wise one doesn't really continue, he he has to prompt him to finish the story. And at that point, the old wise one says simply, that is the end. We so impressed your kind that you became like us and have so remained ever since. That is, as we were. This is intense and really important. Right. It's also extraordinarily complicated to tease out, which is something we're going to attempt to do, is to look at this story in light of the dynamics involved in a colonial power taking over a land from a native people. I love that you pointed out the elements. We have the lava flows and the water that these people were able to imitate forms in the world. And there's nothing to stop us from supposing that one of those could be trees, And that, in fact, we might have multiple subspecies of this shape-shifting thing that have gravitated towards their more natural forms when they imitated the greatest form they could imagine, which was people, or maybe imagine is the wrong word, but the one that they saw. There's a lot going on here with the imitation of forms. I want to point out also the imagery here of the ship landing with the hissing of a thousand serpents. Now, we know that the constellation that the humans now that we know that what they are have come from is the flying lizard. This is serpent imagery. We have the hissing serpents of the spaceship crashing down. And we're going to have a reference to the shadow children referring to this place as paradise. And so we'll also be asking, as if colonialism wasn't enough, what Wolf is doing with this imagery of the fall of man in in a story that is explicitly about colonizers and colonized and the idea of humans as separate species and sentience and consciousness. It's almost too much for a single story, but somehow Wolf does it. It's absolutely remarkable. And also the burning lights in their fists and flames. Those are guns. Yeah, just to be clear, that is exactly what they are. Though I do also think that these images work with this religious language as well, right? Flames, very important in the story of the fall of man, of humans getting kicked out of the paradise that is the Garden of Eden. But also in the Promethean tale as well, which influences the whole school of the Romantics. This is tied, this stealing fire from the gods, the idea of the Promethean man is tied explicitly up in the history of Romanticism unfolding with Lucifer tempting Adam and Eve. Yeah, and the old wise one is going to tell us a little bit more about that right now, the the burning lights and the the flames. Sandwalker, who who does seem to really love a just-so story, accuses the old wise one of not upholding the promise of his narrative. The old wise one has told the part about how they became the same, but he hasn't told the part about how their peoples became different again. After all, Sandwalker is taller than the shadow children, and his legs are straight. Now, the old wise one rejects the premise of this, uh, perhaps going back to the idea that it is only thought that matters. He says, We are taller than you, and stronger, and wrapped in terrible glory. It is true that we no longer have the things of flame and light, but our glance withers, and we sing death to our enemies. Moreover, the bushes drop fruit into their hands, and the earth yields the sons of flying mothers if they turn over a stone. And obviously, this is a lot of hyperbole, right? He's talking about gathering berries and finding insect larvae as if it's the equivalent of a laser gun. I'm not sure that it is, but this is powerful language. Internally, Sandwalker isn't having this comparison either, but since he's polite and since he's a shadow friend, he just prompts the old wise one to really finish the story, to tell him how the shadow children became shadow children. One of the shadow children whose mind is supplying the old wise one comes over and shows Sandwalker something that he is chewing on. It's an herb native to St. Anne, and uh, they seem to be using it very much like chewing tobacco. And Sandwalker recognizes the description of the herb's plant, and he knows that it is poisonous, 
But the old wise one explains that while that is true if it is swallowed and true if it's used too often, you can, however, use it the way that they are, use it as this chewing tobacco uh, once per month without dying. The herb is an intoxicant, and it's so powerful that while you are using it, you won't care about sex or food, right? Basically, bodily concerns. You will forget that your body has needs. What will happen is that you will be sacred then, because God walks with you. It's my understanding here as well that they just get a new leaf every month. They keep this mass of, like, whatever it is in their mouth for a whole month and they switch it every month and towards the end of that period they are going through something that seems very much like withdrawal and they're in this constant intoxicated state but it doesn't matter because the bliss or even the negative effects are so great that it is worth it to remain intoxicated it also heightens the total reality of their subjective experience that that is the real world And it also has somehow given them the ability to mentally connect with all of their species, with their brothers and sisters in the stars, but also all the shadow children on St. Anne. And when we learn a little bit more about the old wise one, that is going to become very important in understanding how he's able to talk about what he's talking about. I also love that we get context for the name Leaves You Can Eat. She is the group's herbalist. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's great that the name is Leaves You Can Eat, not Leaves You Can't Eat, even though I would feel like the job is really telling people which ones you can't eat. Right. And that is her job that we see in the text. Yeah, One more thing I want to say about what we learned here about the use of this drug, this business about using it once per month, they measure the month by the phase of Sanquois of the the sister world, the sister planet, not a moon. It's not clear to me that that's something that takes 28 days to change. So we don't really know how much time is passing. That's interesting in itself. But what I think is really important is that we learn that the shadow children are obsessed with that because they want to know when they can have their next dose, their next hit, I suppose. And because of that, they turn to observing the heavens and measuring time. They become obsessed with measuring time so that they can use this drug. So once again, we're seeing time uh, really wrapped up in uh, the behavior of these groups here on St. Anne. Right. And to also return to this Luciferian, Promethean imagery that we get, they're also obsessed with becoming like God or becoming God or or being recognized as God through the use of this drug, which is in the Catholic tradition, the sin of pride, which is the penultimate sin. But Sandwalker's kind of disgusted by this drug use, by this behavior. He says he's met a man like this before and that he would have killed him if he hadn't pitied him so much. But the shadow children also pity someone who is using the herb, but they also envy him because he is God. And Sandwalker's pretty skeptical of this. He says, this man would have killed him. And this seems obvious to the old wise one who explains that, well, that's because he saw Sandwalker for what he is and in doing so felt his shame. So when you're on this drug, I guess you, you have some kind of insight into who people are that also maybe makes you want to kill them to put them out of their misery. This is actually the exact opposite reaction that God has to man recognizing his shame in the story of the fall of man in the first three chapters of Genesis. Man is the one who attributes shame to himself for being naked. And so God does the first sacrifice. He sacrifices the first animal to give him clothes so that man could cover his own shame, not for God's benefit, but for his own sense of dignity, having received the knowledge of good and evil. This is the exact opposite. This is a very different notion of God than what we're getting, though we're getting a fall of man story with spaceships and opiates. (laughs) Well, right, and, and also crucial to the fall of man story, the original sin story, is that the fruit that they consume is done under the false promise that that will make them like God. That's literally what's happening here. They are consuming this thing that they get from some kind of plant on this world, and now they think they are like God. And this will all be 
unpack to everyone's great joy and benefit in our discussion and potentially our wrap-up episode as well. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. We still have a lot of ground to cover here in the recap episode. So I'll get us moving back along here. Uh, it is the, the use of this drug that has changed the humans into shadow children. That's the, the point of this story to begin with. And the old wise one here describes this as a reversion to the type of creature that humans were before they had discovered fire, before the Promethean moment, perhaps. And he describes them as roaming without whatever may be named, save the sun, the night, and each other. And now they are like this again because they are gods, and things made by hands don't concern them anymore. And of course, also, Sandwalker's species mimics what it sees, and it sees the humans living like this now, and so that is all they can do as well, right? Which seems to be a way of saying that this is why they don't have tools and cities, but in fact are something of hunter-gatherers. This speaks directly to Vale's hypothesis about once the Abos imitated humans, they lost their ability to continue changing, which would lead to their demise in some way. This idea about roaming without knowing the names for things is also straight out of the Fall of Man story. God does not give names to things, but the stars and the darkness and the earth. It is up to Adam to give names to creatures and animals and things like that. So they are really living in a distorted version of this sense of God that is the pre-human God who has no need for any of this because he is complete in himself. It is interesting there that they do have individual names, though. I think that's really fascinating. I think we'll maybe unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's clear to say that these kids are a little crazy. <laughs> well, Sandwalker thinks that this story is absurd. I mean, it amuses him as he likes just so stories, but it's clearly not true. It is clearly just a story. Though, again, he's polite and he's a shadow friend, so he doesn't say this out loud to the old wise one. Uh, he does here also turn down the offer to do some drugs with the shadow children, and then he goes back to sleep. And that's the end of this uh, absolutely critical and mind-bending conversation. That night, Sandwalker has a terrible dream of being a hanging naked worm of consciousness. Suddenly, a scream wakes him, and he finds himself flailing, but his legs are bound. While he's been sleeping, the sand beneath him has begun to erode, and he's being swallowed up by this sand, by the earth. And he's saved by the other people in the pit, and when he eventually falls back asleep, now he is in Eastwind's mind again, and Last Voice is upset about something. He says, this cannot be true. Look again. But Eastwind cannot look again because there is a cloud covering the night sky, and it's keeping him from being able to read the stars. When Sandwalker wakes up again, it is still not yet dawn, but the Marshmen have come to take them to the river. Last Voice is there, standing in the shallow water. He's wearing a garland of white flowers on his head and another one of red blossoms on his shoulders. Next to him is Eastwind, and all along the banks are hundreds of people. Presumably it's the entire Marshman community. The Marshman guards force the hill people into the water, and then Last Voice begins some kind of religious ceremony. He chants something, but Sandwalker won't tell us what he says, except that it's blasphemy and that he refused to listen to it. Uh, and instead of listening to it, he prayed to God that he might escape. And he also asks the ghost of the priest in Thunder always to help him out here. But he knows that the ghost is not there. And of course, I really wish that we knew what Last Voice had been saying, but we will uh, perhaps never find out. And when the chanting ends, men surge forward and force some of the hill people into deeper water. Sandwalker tries to help them, but he's, he's struck down from behind. Bloody Finger and Leaves You Can Eat are now dead. Then the guards near Sandwalker kill two of the Shadow Children as well, and Sandwalker is angry when he asks why the Marshmen have done this, why they've killed the Shadow Children. These guards simply say, they're not people. We can eat them anytime. Big feast tonight. And I can't help but be reminded here of Phidria's comment about the fighting slaves not being people back in Port Mimizon. Now Eastwind appears, and he explains that normally they only drown one person at a time. Sandwalker has a real snide comment here, right? He says, well, I guess the stars were kind then. But very seriously, ignoring Sandwalker's sarcasm here, Eastwind says that when the stars are kind, 
they don't send the river any messengers at all. Sandwalker and the others are, are taken back to the pit of the other eye, and when they arrive there, they find seven girls waiting. Right. This section is really just kind of filled with uh, dramatic tension and action and not a lot of great reveals. I do want to point something out about Sandwalker's nightmare, which is that his dream is about what he will be like when he is dead and his consciousness is in the stars for Eastwind to use for his own benefit. I love this final sentence about his evil dreams. You, you read a part of it. I want to read the whole thing. Every part of him had vanished so that he saw without eyes and felt without skin hanging in naked worm of consciousness amid blazing glories. I just love that imagery. It is so good. And it honestly took me two reads to figure out that this was a nightmare about Sandwalker's anxiety about being an unanchored soul, a soul without a body in the heavens. It's wonderful stuff. We get another animal name in the section. It is the High Need Hair Heron. It's just a ridiculous name for an animal. I mean, it's got to be in some Marshman tongue twisters. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to point out that the the Marshmen are very aware of these portents in the sky that are actually in the process of coming true. We'll find out that the stars are evil and evil may befall. But because this story is so complicated from a textual narrative level, but also a metatextual narrative level. We know who the stars are evil for, but we don't know if that's a universal good or evil. And it's just another level of what's happening in the narrative of this story. And Wolf does a great job here of giving us Sandwalker as kind of a hard-boiled private eye who's cracking wise while he's someone else's prisoner. But Eastwind is really in a whole nother type of story. He's actually not the villain in a detective story. He's distraught and and maybe even sad and, and certainly afraid, right, that they have to be doing this, that they have to be making these human sacrifices. He's afraid of what is happening with these stars in the sky. And of course, we will get more about that at the climax. Right. And I think another thing that Wolf does very well to bury that is so deeply buried in the plot is the Marshman's ill treatment of the shadow children is leading to their own massive event that is going to reshape their relationship with their planet. It has the scent of Greek tragedy about it, if I do say so. <laughs> well, in the next section, we get some backstory about Seven Girls Waiting. We learn that she and Pink Butterflies had followed Sandwalker down the river, and of course, they've been captured. And at first, Sandwalker is sad about this, but as she is telling her story, he actually becomes mildly angry at her foolishness of following him without realizing that she's going to be going into danger. And also, Seven Girls Waiting seems almost happy in this pit because she's finally with another group of people, even if she's actually a prisoner now. And this is something that is irritating Sandwalker also. We don't get any more narrative about this day, but later that night, the remaining Shadow Children sing the tear song for their dead friends, these two who had been drowned for the Marshmen's banquet. While they're singing, Sandwalker watches the night sky the stars blazing now that St. Croix is waning. And he, he's searching for a sign that Bloody Finger and Leaves You Can Eat have carried their message to the stars as they've been murdered for. But all he sees are the same old constellations. And later he asks the old wise one if he knows how to read the stars. He does, he can, but he explains that what the stars say for shadow children will not always be the same thing that they say for hill people. They carry different messages to different people and in a different language. I think that's really important. And anyway, uh, all of it is foolish divination, right? The truth, he says, is whatever one believes. Still, Sandwalker persists, and the old wise one tells him that Cedar Branch is waving, that's Sandwalker's mother, will not die tomorrow. And their conversation now turns to mourning their friends. The old wise one is, is disappointed that Sandwalker didn't join in the tear song, but the shadow children know that he was busy with uh, his thoughts about his own people who had died that day as well. And there, there's a bit here in which uh, the old wise one explains that they wouldn't want their dead friends returned to them, even if such a thing were actually possible. If they could be resurrected, they wouldn't want that. And indeed, if that did happen, they would actually kill them again. 
And that's really fascinating to me. We also learn here that the shadow children have names, and we learn that the names of the two who died this morning were Hatcher and Hunter. And I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by these names just right off the bat. They're labels for people who take specific actions, right? Hunter, that's fairly obvious. That is someone who goes and, and hunts. But Hatcher, uh, as, as a name anyway, means someone who opens and closes doors. It, it's actually basically the same thing as Porter, which is a, a word that Wolf made a lot out of in the first novella back in Port Mimizan. But Hatcher can also mean someone who takes care of eggs and helps them hatch. But in either case, these meanings imply a type of sedentary domesticity that the shadow children do not participate in. So I find this curious, how they came by these names. The Shadow Children's naming conventions are fascinating. And I think it's going to speak to what I believe is the fact that they have been on the planet for maybe only four generations. And we're going to get more about their naming conventions in in a few pages. I love the difference in, in grieving processes here that we see as well. The Shadow Children sing the tear song and Sandwalker just wants to sit down and tell stories about his family, his kin. One thing I do want to point out here, and this will be important when we reveal more about the old wise one, that he looks younger now that Hatcher and Hunter are dead to Sandwalker's eyes. We're going to get a lot revealed about the old wise one as the story continues. One thing I I want to say before we do continue that story is people who are reading along with us may have a very different interpretation about how long the humans or shadow children have been on St. Anne than the one that you just presented. I just want to make it clear that we are going to talk about that, but not until the wrap-up episode. All right, so we do get some more here about shadow children's names, and Sandwalker confesses that it never occurred to him that the shadow children even have names. He only thought of them as what type of creature they are. They are shadow children. One of them is a shadow child. The idea that they would have a designation or a name simply never occurred to him. And the old wise one tells Sandwalker that the names of the three that are still remaining are Foxfire, Swan, and Whistler. So now we have a type of light, we have a bird, and we have a person who whistles, or possibly uh, also another type of bird. Whistler could be either of those things. But Sandwalker comments on these names by saying that they are just like the names of people. And dreamily, not really paying attention at all, the old wise one says... We had no names before men came out of the sky. We were mostly long and lived in holes between the roots of trees. And this is at least the second time just in this section of the narrative that the old wise one has become confused about his own identity, uh, about how long his species has been on the planet, or even what his species is like. He's now describing the shadow children, the humans, in the same way that he described the Abos just the day before. This is very, very important and interesting stuff. And I think it's tough to pick up on on a first read that the old wise one is changing as a result of Sandwalkers being a shadow friend and the demise of the other shadow children. This becomes a little bit more explicit as we go deeper into this story. It's never actually explicit in what Wolf writes down. Wolf never writes down. The old wise one is changing because there are fewer shadow children and Sandwalker's a shadow friend. That's what's happening though. I do also want to point out that this kind of collectivism that the shadow children participate in, that they are kind of one mind or they're able to create one mind to speak for them, that they're not seen as individuals, they're seen as part of a group always is really highlighted by the use of the old wise one's term comrade to describe the other shadow children. I think here we're seeing Wolf also looking at the way we view our enemies on the world stage for his present readers. Yeah, these are a group of people who are living in something like a commune as hunter-gatherers. They are doing drugs, calling each other comrades, and talking about political revolutions while they're in a prison. And it's also possible that they're speaking French. So this is a bit of a joke that Wolf is making, I think, about communism in youth culture and possibly something about hippie culture, which we've seen Wolf talk about before in Operation Ares. This is meant to be funny if you can peel back the, I don't know, 17 layers it takes to see that that's a joke. Right. That's exactly right. It's it's really funny and it's very clever. And it's also about, in some way, about how 
groups in conflict with one another begin to resemble one another as they focus on the enemy instead of other things in the world. And I I think that's going to be a part of what we talk about when we get to the discussion. Well, now we get some more confusing explanations about what is actually happening on this planet, about what's going on in this story. Sam Walker's also confused by this response, right? He thought that it had been his people who were the shape changers, and it was the shadow children who supplied the original form that they are now mimicking. Well, the old wise one is also confused. He says it's hard to keep things straight now that there are only three shadow children in the pit, and there are more hill people. And as you point out, Brandon, it really matters that it's Sandwalker, who is now mathematically supplying 25% of the old wise one's identity or consciousness, we might say. You see, he explains, he is made up of their songs. And he says, once there was a people using their hands when they had hands only to take food. There came among them another who crossed from star to star. Then it was found that the first heard the songs of the second and sent them out again, greater, greater, greater than before. Then the second felt their songs more strongly in all their bones, but touched, perhaps, by the first. Once I was sure I knew who the first were and the second. Now I am no longer sure. And uh, I think we will eventually spend a a lot of time trying to figure that out as well. But we are not going to get any help from Sandwalker. He just says, and I am no longer sure of what it is you're saying. And he goes to lie down between Sweet Mouth and Seven Girls waiting. I say, I've got two girlfriends over in the corner. I'm done with this conversation. Yeah. The old wise one does continue, though, telling the story of the Starcrosser landing into the sea from the perspective of the cultural memory, perhaps we can say, or maybe Sandwalker himself. There is a lot of mystery here. We know that Sandwalker is born in this story. But is he born uh, a human? I think he has to be. He has to be born in the shape of a human. So the songs originally then belong to this race of shapeshifters and were somehow co-opted by the humans. But in any event, the identities are being subsumed by one another. They are being collapsed onto one another. And that's a very important feature of this story as well. I'm going to read this line of poetry in just a minute, but I do want to say that your understanding of what's going on here is dependent on your assumption that the Shadow Children have only been here for, at most, 40 years. Very good. If if we think that it's maybe been a different amount of time, a longer amount of time, than this line of poetry I'm about to read may derive from some wholly other context. But the line is really beautiful, so I am going to read it. This line of poetry that the old wise one intones as Sandwalker is walking away is... Like a spark from the echoless vault of emptiness, the shining shape slipped steaming into the sea. Obviously, that's gorgeous. And uh, there's some really awesome alliteration there, a thing that I always love. And uh, this is, as you suggest, Brandon, this is likely describing the arrival of a spaceship, presumably from Earth. But I do actually also think that this is meant to recall the rhyme of the ancient mariner, which, of course, is how this entire book opens. And there's a bit from part four of the rhyme of the ancient mariner that this line called to mind for me. And I I want to read that and maybe I don't know, see what we make of putting them both together. This is what Coleridge writes. Beyond the shadow of the ship, I watched the water snakes. They moved in tracks of shining white, and when they reared, the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. Within the shadow of the ship, I watched their rich attire, blue, glossy green, and velvet black. They coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire, In a sense, right, both of these passages are about explorers encountering strange new life and marveling at it. But uh, we also get the significance of the sea. We also get this image of blue and green and black that easily suggests, right, these binary planets, the blue and the green, in the blackness of space here. So I I think this is something intentional that Wolf has done, that uh, in some sense, the fifth head of Cerberus is his fan fiction about the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Well, I think that is absolutely the case about Fifth Head of Cerberus. Well, let's continue. We're, we're going on now to the last section of the text. It's just before dawn the next morning, and the prisoners now are escorted from the pit. Eastwind tells Sandwalker that the stars last night were very evil, and that last voice is disturbed, and he's almost panicking about this. And Sandwalker, again, uses this as an opportunity to crack wise, to talk back a little bit. 
He says that he expects that old bloody fingers probably been telling everyone up in the stars that the Marshmen deserve even worse than they've been getting. And he promises to say the same thing if he is murdered and his mind is sent to the stars. And right? he's not going to play along with them. He's not going to help out the people who are murdering his family, his friends and him. When they get to the river, there is a mist hovering over it, and Sandwalker thinks that this might help him escape. Today, the Marshmen are wearing necklaces and bracelets of bright green grass, and they are dancing. And as they dance, they wind like a serpent, and they're mumbling something. And this, with the fog, I have to say, it feels straight out of Call of Cthulhu to me, the Louisiana marsh scene there. According to Eastwind, this may be the last ever muster of the marsh because the stars are so evil right now. The Marshmen kill two of the three Shadow Children now, and when they die, the Shadow Children issue a scream that is not quite human. The Old Wise One is standing next to Starwalker, and then the last of the Shadow Children touches Sandwalker's arm. We will die together, he says. We loved you. Sandwalker asks this one his name, and in response he says, Wolf. And of course, Sandwalker is confused because that was not one of the three names that he was told last night. Wolf explains that they change their names based on how many are in their group. They have names for seven, for five, for three, and for one. Interestingly, all prime numbers. And I also love that Wolf is the name for one here. So he has found a, another way to insert himself into this story. Though I think we actually had one earlier that we skipped, but it's great. Yeah, I love this as well. And I, I know less what to do with this reference to his name than we did in Fifth Head, but it's fantastic. It tells us about maybe the roles that the names play in these groupings of, of shadow children. That when there is one, they have a specific function, which is they are alone. They are the lone wolf. And as they get bigger, their society, their communities adapt to create roles for each member of it. But I don't want to say too much about it because we're just about to learn about the old wise one's name. Right. We learned that his name never changes. He is always called the old wise one. Well, except, of course, when he is called, as, as he used to be called seemingly all the time, the group norm. This is absolutely fascinating. Right. And it's at this moment that all of this changing sense of the old wise one comes into focus. Sandwalker being adopted by the Shadow Children as a Shadow Friend has changed their group norm in some way. It's changed their their mental life. And we don't really see an impact of that until there are only two to create the group norm. And that is what creates all this confusion. This is also another kind of attack on the idea of the people as an entity, as an agent of history that the USSR was so fond of using in their propaganda. I think that this use here of the term group norm is going to be really useful for us in, in solving some of the mysteries about who the shadow children are, if their claim about being humans is actually true, and if it is true when they actually got here. This is going to supply some evidence for that conversation as well. We're coming now to the real climax, the real action of this story. Sandwalker, again, is thinking about escaping, and, and he prays again, and we actually get access to his prayer here. God, dear God, good master. And this is a really interesting use of what is clearly biblical language. This is Jewish and Christian uh, scriptural language. And we tend to use the word Lord here in English and equivalents in other Western European languages for God, and especially here where the word master is used, right? We would say, God, dear God, good Lord. But the Hebrew and Greek or Latin words that are being translated as Lord or Senor in our Bibles is actually a word that more properly to the people who wrote these texts down means master, as in someone who owns slaves. And we have seen that owning slaves, right, is a huge theme in the first story. So I do not at all think it is accidental that Wolf decides to translate Dominus as master here and not as Lord, as would appear in any English translation of the Bible. But this is not the thing that Sandwalker is thinking about as he's praying. Now that he has prayed, he, he tries to escape but as soon as he moves, he slips, and the whole thing is no use. The last shadow child, Wolf, says that he too wishes to live, and he thinks that there may be a way that the two of them can pull it off. 
Wolf explains, Men cross the stars, bending the sky to make the way short. And uh, we'll probably want to talk about that phrase at some point. That's describing the mechanism of space travel. Uh, But right now, he goes on to say, Since first we came here. But the old wise one cuts him off and explains that now that he is half made up of Sandwalker's thoughts, he realizes that the Shadow Children have always been here, listening to the thought that did not come, and listening without thought of their own to be men. Moreover, it may be that all of them are one stock rather than two, half remembering and dwindling, half forgetting and flourishing. Wolf doesn't care about that. Wolf, the Shadow Child character, I mean... What he knows is that they have sung to hold the Starcrossers back, desiring to live as they wished, unreminded of what was and of what is. And though the Starcrossing people have bent the sky, the Shadow Children have bent their thought and kept them from coming here. But suppose now that Wolf sings in such a way to let them in, to summon the Starcrossing people. Then there would be plenty of food for the Marshmen to choose from, and maybe they won't choose to eat Wolf and Sandwalker. This is really interesting. It's funny here, right? He thinks, well, there's some people out there who we could summon to this location, not to like fight our enemies for us and help us that way, but because our enemies might decide to eat those people instead of us. It'll just increase the odds that they're not going to choose to eat us. It's a pretty limited way of thinking. It's not a particularly tactical way of thinking. We will be discussing this. It's ins- it's an insane plan. It's one of those instances where it could be that the cure is worse than the disease. But also, with only one shadow child left, he's also thinking about the survival of himself, of the group norm, of the old wise one. I don't think it's as mad as it seems, the, the desire to survive, the crazy outcry to do one last thing to try to survive. But it is mad. It is an act of madness and of sheer survival instinct. And part of what's wrong with this conception, right, is that the shadow child here, Wolf, doesn't seem to take into consideration that people who can come to this planet from another planet light years away might have some way of militarily defeating people who don't even have weapons. This is just not something that crosses his mind. He thinks that if they invite these foreigners, these strangers, into their land, they will be able to defeat them and nothing bad will come of it. Right. And I think we also have to take into consideration at this point that neither St. Anne nor St. Croix have been discovered by these travelers because anybody on St. Croix would have seen St. Anne. Right now, the old wise one also thinks that this is a dumb plan. It's an evil plan, he thinks. For very long, they have walked carefree in the only paradise, and it would be better if all here were to die than for the star crossers to show up. But Wolf, the shadow child, disagrees, and he says that nothing is worse than his own personal death. He wants to live no matter the cost. And I want to point out here that the shadow child, by the author of this text, is referred to as the last shadow child. This is the end of this species in its mind. Yeah, that's an interesting emphasis on that phrase, because in the story, it's really just meaning the last of this group. But I think that you're right to read it that way. Well, as soon as Wolf says this, right, says that he does not want to die, something that had wrapped the world is gone. There is some unclear but nonetheless tangible change, as if something that Sandwalker never knew was there is now gone. And he can tell, he can feel its absence. When he looks at Wolf again, the shadow child is crying, and his eyes hold nothing at all. It's a creepy image. And Sandwalker feels the same way. And in a panic, he asks his mother what color his eyes are now. They are green. Everyone's eyes are green. That's the color that eyes are. And of course, we should point out here, right, that this is certainly the color of eyes on San Qua. So we'll be coming back to this point. And John V. Marsh's eyes in particular. Exactly. I've said it before, but now we are really coming to the, I don't know, climax, climax of the story. We're really here at the end. There is a glowing red spark in the sky and a whistling and a humming comes over the water. Red fire comes hissing down from the sky. And then there are two more of these red flames. The marshmen people scream and run. In the confusion of everyone fleeing from these descending red sparks, Sandwalker and his people encounter Eastwind and Last Voice. Eastwind begs Sandwalker to help him. You see, when a star falls, as has just happened, the Starwalker must be killed. His blood must 
cloud the waters. And Eastwind is worried that he's not strong enough to do it. And so he wants Sandwalker's help with the sacrifice. Right. And this this is a, something that lends credence to me, to my reading, that the traditions of these people are new, maybe only three to four generations old, and that the Shadow Children have not been around for a long time. Because it's not clear to me that many of these Starwalkers have been sacrificed, the lead of the Starwalkers. It is something that happens when a star falls. But we only know of one star falling like this. The language used here is referring explicitly to a spaceship landing. And perhaps the shape-shifting lava monsters or whatever these abos were on this planet, the lava werewolves, had some sense of sentience, had some sense of a dramatic change as a result of the first landing. Though it could point to there having been many, many contacts, many ships landing, but only recently have the Shadow Children obfuscated the the planet's place in the cosmos. Yeah, I think I'm less sold on the infrequency of the performance of this ritual should be a, a marker of time or is proof that this is only recent. In fact, I think it might actually work the other way as proof that the Shadow Children, as uh, the old wise one sometimes seems to claim, have been here for so long that it may as well have been forever. It's just that spaceships don't come very often, and so they don't have to perform the ritual all that frequently. To my mind, this is like a type of ritual or proceeding that we might have in our own civilization that we don't do very often. And so when we have occasion to do it, there's confusion and we need help. You know, these would be things uh, just thinking about government, right? Like the impeachment proceedings for a president or uh, the funeral for a sitting president. These types of things that happen extremely rarely. And we would actually have to consult the books to see how they're done. Soldiers who are going to participate in the ceremony of such a funeral would have to learn those moves again. It's probably not something they're actively practicing and they would need help in order to do that. So it could actually be a way of measuring a lot of time rather than a little time. We're going to have a fun conversation about this. (laughs) Yeah, I like teasing it. (laughs) Well, Sandwalker agrees to help Eastwind here, and together they flog Last Voice with the roots of some nearby trees. They flog him until his blood no longer runs from the wounds. This is really uh, disturbing, and this is perhaps the earliest sign that Wolf is going to become interested in torture and the people who do it, torturers. Now that he is completely exsanguinated, Last Voice is left to drift into the ocean. They don't eat these sacrifices. Rather, they they give them completely to the ocean, which we'll recall in the, the metaphorical language of these people is the past. So they give the bodies of Starwalkers to the past. Sandwalker asks if Eastwind is now the ruler of the Marshmen since Last Voice is dead, and he is, or at least he will be, when his head is ritually burned. But Sandwalker wants to kill Eastwind. The old wise one is there, and he counsels against it. The old wise one is pretty cautious, I I think. The old wise one isn't just cautious. He's also half Sandwalker. So the killing of Sandwalker would be something unconscionable to something that would be a group norm that is interested in its own survival. Right. And that's what he he says. He says that if Sandwalker kills Eastwind, he'll be killing something of himself. And even though we've heard Sandwalker before explicitly say that he doesn't believe this, right? We know that Eastwind and the the Marshmen do. The old wise one goes on to say that, moreover, even though Eastwind was prepared to kill Sandwalker in this ritual, he was prepared to do that because of what is in his mind, his understanding of how the world works and what his purpose is. But what Sandwalker wants to do right now is to kill for hatred. And that the old wise one claims, is something that Eastwind would never do, and Sandwalker should treat him the same way. But Sandwalker is, is skeptical of this. He thinks that Eastwind absolutely would kill out of hatred, and maybe he thinks that Eastwind's motivations the whole time have been some kind of hatred, not some kind of priestly duty. The old wise one says that he can prove his argument here. And now Wolf, the last shadow child, speaks. He says to Eastwind that the Shadow Children are a magic people, that he alone, Wolf, made the stars fall, and now he will do an even greater magic trick. He will make the brothers switch minds. And immediately, Wolf bites into Eastwind's arm and and mixes up his drugged saliva into Eastwind's veins, and 
instantly Eastwind goes into some kind of hallucinatory state. Sam Walker just doesn't really care about this. He thinks this is all foolish, and he drowns Eastwind. But he says that now he doesn't know if he has Sandwalker or Eastwind in his dream. And Wolf doesn't know either. But he also doesn't actually seem all that interested in this question anymore because now there is something happening on the beach and he wants to go check that out. Sandwalker looks over to the beach and he sees a green thing bobbing in the water. Three men with their limbs wrapped in leaves stand on the sand near it. They're speaking in a language that Sandwalker doesn't understand. And when Sandwalker approaches... They extend their open hands, and they smile. But Sandwalker doesn't understand that open hands mean, or at least that they had meant once, that these people hold no weapons. You see, his people had never known weapons. And the last sentence of the story is this. That night, Sandwalker dreamed that he was dead, but the long dreaming days were over. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, there's an awful lot in the end of this story that we'll try to get to in our discussion. But if we don't, I promise it'll be in the wrap up. The first is just to make clear some things or recall what we had covered in the past, that the reason why the Starwalker needs to be killed, the judge of the people, is because of the relationship between the stars and the river, the way they reflect one another, and that they have to cloud the river with the blood of the Starwalker so the stars can't see themselves and know the truth about what's going on. And this is this reflective thing that's also happening with Sandwalker and and Eastwind is the need to cloud to forget. At the end of this story, I think it's clear to me, at least, that it is Eastwind who kills Sandwalker and Eastwind takes the place of Sandwalker. This is not something we will get objectivity on, except through language, because we know that the drug clouds objectivity. So while Sandwalker could check his genitals and see if he's been castrated to see which one he is, it doesn't matter because the truth is what you believe it is. And because Eastwind has been confounded, the truth he believes will be the truth. But I think the clue we get is while Eastwind is still kind of confounded, Sandwalker asks, Wolf, how will we know what Eastwind will do if he thinks he's me? And the response is, he will speak soon. And then one of them is drowned, and the next line is, I spoke. So to me, that's a clue that Eastwind has somehow taken Sandwalker's place. So that's kind of how I want to clear that up. At the end of the story, Sandwalker dreaming that he is dead. He is dead because he is Eastwind, and he's dead. I think that's also another hint that's going on there. There's probably a lot to discuss, which we will get to in our discussion episode. So that's going to do it for the recap episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand, and we will be back in just a few days with a discussion of this section. There's a lot to talk about, obviously. And uh, until then, we greet you and say Merry Christmas. 